As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me is my co-host, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Fantastic. And I am your other co-host, Mark Bigney, and we are going to talk about board games this week. But first, we're going to have a very, very minor addendum to our discussion last week about Messina 1347. And... This is merely to emphasize that this is not a public health podcast. This is not a history podcast. And verging into controversies of public health and controversies of his history, especially as it intersect, probably not the best of ideas. There's a controversy as to where the Black Death came from in Europe. I will editorialize for just one second because I am, a, as ever, a hypocrite. I do find it fascinating that in Western discourse about the Black Death, there is an inordinate amount of discussion about where the disease first came from and precious little discussion about the various cultural and health factors that led to it spreading in Europe. For example, the fact that there's effluent running through the streets, a variety of prohibitions against bathing, a variety of other problems that led, it, led the Black Death to spread particularly well. But we don't want to focus on that. We'd rather talk about where Where did it come from from outside Europe? Anyway, there's a lot of different evidence. We only mentioned one of them. That is a bit myopic in hindsight. And so we would rather not address that any further. That's roughly where we're sitting now. Some, some listeners objected very reasonably, I think. We shouldn't endorse one view over another. It's not our specialty. And there's a lot of views to be had. So we still stand behind Messina 1347. Or at least Walker does. I haven't played it yet. But as to where the Black Death came from, we will remain silent. How's that sound, Walker? Sounds fantastic. Well, then, we are going to proceed to talking more about some board games. We're going to talk about the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Eurus. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And finally, our topic. We are returning to a topic. We had a number of review games to review. That's why we did several reviews in a row. Our commissioners and overlords expressed interest in a number of games to review, so we churned those out in, in succession. We will probably be returning to a relatively more stable alternation sequence going forward. Our topic this week is fumbling towards a new normal. Normal. And this, I think, has been very present on my mind by virtue of some of the news that we have to announce this week. We're very, very pleased about announcing some of this news about some of the things that Walker has been doing over the course of the past weekend. He's been very, very pleased about what happened over the course of the past weekend. And this has led me to reflect on where we're headed, particularly as we emerge from COVID. So I said this is not a public health co podcast, but it is, Twist. So, with that in mind, Walker, why don't we talk about the game we reviewed last year? Exactly one year ago, Tidal Blades, Heroes of the Reef, designed by Tim Elsner and Ben Elsner, published by Druid City Games. Where are we, Walker? Welcome to Naviri. Thank you, Walker. Now, this game is still on my shelf. It is not added to any of the get rid of lists. I'm going to keep this. They've started a whole IP for Tidal Blades. There's a Tidal Blades 2, Rise of the Unfolders. There's Tidal Blades <laughs> Banner Festivals. I hate that subtitle. Stop. How about Banner Festival? You probably never, did I mention that? I think no, I that, that one I like better. So Banner Festival was supposed to go to pre-order, but I just watched about, uh, looked into it today and they've taken it off a of pre-order. Now they've teamed up with Lucky Duck Games and it's going to come to retail still, but just not till November and just straight to retail, no pre-order. I'm glad the IP is continuing, honestly. 
it's a colorful world. I liked some of the elements of the world building. I liked a lot of the elements of the art assets and how they hung together. It was a very visually appealing game. I didn't enjoy the gameplay. I found it repetitive and, and overlong. But when, for example, you commissioned Chip the Third to paint the figures of Tidal Blades, I wasn't confused as to why. <laughs> it made perfect sense. I forgot to mention there's a whole role-playing system now as well. It's true. So let's get back to the actual game. You're playing these heroes. This barrier that's been keeping giant monsters away is failing. So they have this competition to see who the new heroes that are going to push them back are going to be. And so you're doing all these, you're going around all these different competitions. You get to do this dice rolling. You're trying to match symbols on these monsters. You're trying to get points. (laughs) It's true. It's like Pacific Rim meets American Ninja Warrior. (laughs) It, it strikes me actually. We're gonna be. I'm gonna be talking about vengeance, roll and fight in just a minute. It reminds me a little bit of vengeance in that you know the theme is really appealing, but the theme lends itself to a co-op game, not a competitive game. Uh, because I remember that was one of your criticisms of the game. Very very minor aside, it's like you know why are we having a tournament to decide who gets to go fight the monsters? This is an all hands on deck situation. Yeah, it's not like there's a very narrow aperture and we can only send one hero it's at like, a time. Come on, everyone, grab a spear. We're, yeah, we're going out to protect our village. It's... Yeah, exactly. It's not at the point where they have like sponsorship of anything. <laughs> you know, it's not like local Navuri Soda sponsors this person to go fight the monsters. But it definitely seems an awful lot like a game show in a lot of a lot of its trappings. It seems a little bit at odds with the the seriousness of the theme and the giant monsters coming to attack you. But anyway, as I say, lush, vibrant world. Glad the IP is continuing. No interest to return to the game, but I perfectly respect your desire to hang on to it. And that is Tidal Blades, Heroes of the Reef. Now onto the games we played this week. Mark, what'd you play? Well, as I mentioned, we played Vengeance, Roll and Fight. Roll and Fight is the roll and write version of Vengeance. Vengeance, which I, I keep thinking is probably one of the best themed board games I've ever played with the minor wrinkle that it lends itself more to a co-op atmosphere than a, than a private atmosphere. Uh, Vengeance, Roll and Fight, similarly, is a competitive game, but the friction with respect to the theme is significantly lower by virtue of the fact that the theme is significantly lower. And in point of fact, I felt like I had to do more of the heavy lifting to motivate the universe of Vengeance, Roll and Fight, because as I've commented before, the character unique drawback is basically all that you get instead of the wronging. I had to explain that the gangs had wronged you first before you go and murder everyone that's in the, the, the building. And once you get that aside, I think having played now the production version uh, several times since I've received it, this is by far and away my favorite roll and write. If for no other reason than both the rolling segment and the writing segment are full of choices and lead to player interaction. It's funny because we played this almost right after Rush Out, which really sort of emphasized how painful Rush Out was. <laughs> well, I'm trying to figure out why I enjoy this production copy a lot more. I remember struggling with the prototype for some reason or other, but I enjoyed this time much, much better. The puzzle of figuring out how to use your dice results, the, the real-time stress of deciding how you need to manage your wounds at the same time as grabbing more dice from the middle of the table, cursing your neighbors for having grabbed more dice than you think they're quote-unquote owed. Really, really impressive work. I'm a huge fan of Vengeance Roll and Fight. I'm probably going to try to combine it into two boxes. That's another one of my beefs. We mentioned this in the context of talking about Sakura Arms. If you're offering this in a Kickstarter, it would be nice to at least have some notion. I'm not saying you need to design a big box. Big big boxes have ruined many a publisher and are very difficult to design. But at least design the boxes and the components with the idea that many people will want to consolidate them into a single box. And if you can do something towards that end, please do. Vengeance, Roll, and Fight, real hard to do. I'm going to have to think about how to do it. it. It probably won't be possible, but I'd like to. The only difference is the different dens. And the dens are... The art on the dens is marvelous. You really do get a sense of narrative about running through this gambling hole or this abandoned church or this weird rec center, murdering everyone on the way. And I think that's one of the primary appeals of the different locations. I haven't sat down and, you know, min-maxed the different ones in terms of how easy the various goals are. That is the kind of thing that I shrug and leave to designers and developers. I hope they did an okay job. Whatever. I mean, yeah, it's a competitive experience in that you need to be rolling dice faster and figuring out your results better than everyone else. But it's not the competitive experience in the sense of direct player interaction once you've finished rolling the dice. It's got a great space alert feel to it, right? It's got that frantic time sort of thing where you're racing around and then everyone has all their dice laid out and then you're going through the actions of what the frantic part was and it's like oh my god all I've got here is shooting I'm not moving (laughs) anywhere or I'm 
doing a bunch of stabbing, but everything's already dead in the room I'm in. Silly things like that. There's got tons of abilities that you can sort of work towards your certain play style because the abilities are much like any other sort of role-playing or, you know, adventure-type game where they've got different trees and you could, you know, specialize in certain areas. And you always feel – I think the comparison with Space Lord is a good one. You always feel like you're on the brink of disaster. And even while you're going through and murdering tons of thugs, because allow me to emphasize, even when you're playing Vengeance Roll and Fight poorly, there will be lots of murder. There will still be plenty of vengeance to be had, although not necessarily as much vengeance as you would like. It's much like life in that way. You do feel like you never have quite enough wounds to be comfortable. You're never really, really safe from the predation. I think they've really got the balance right in terms of the feel. So there's constant tension, easy to explain, very, very, very quick game. It has all the benefits of the roll and write genre, other than the sort of happy, fuzzy edges of planning your dream home. This is absolutely an adult-themed game, and that's fine. But it has enough elements that I think differentiate it from all of the design features that I think hold back Roll and Rights traditionally. So I'm a, I'm a huge, huge fan of Vengeance Roll and Fight. It's by far my favorite of the genre. Designed by Gordon Kalea, who designed the original Vengeance. Also co-designed by Norley Lubbers and David Tsertse. We also played Regicide that night. And Mark, we didn't win. But Regicide never fails to please <laughs> everyone. You, we're just going to get trolled. I'm going to get trolled some more, not we. I'm going to get trolled again. I wonder why we lost. <laughs> okay, that it was my fault. Look, wait, no, I wasn't the one who died. I finished my turn successfully. I refused to take the blame. Oh, I see. Yes, after looking over and seeing that the next player had one card, you nicely that was their fault. Defended and and sent the that was that was their fault. The rampaging queen. Me and Peanut, we did our job. Gotcha. Understood. Too bad it's a co-op game. <laughs> Good point. Regicide is designed by Paul Abrams, Luke Badger, and Andy. Richdale, published by Badgers from Mars. Played a couple games of Scapegoat. Scapegoat is the wonderfully minimalistic social deduction game by John Perry. And in very much the same way that Vengeance, Roll and Fight may be the roll and write for people who don't like roll and rights, I frequently said that Scapegoat is the social deduction game for people who don't like social deduction games, as well as for people who do. Because you're not really involved in the constant tense, why did you do that? Tell me, explain to me all your actions. What, what exactly what happened? Instead, it's more a game of tense inference. And I really, really appreciated the one of the games we played where I was the scapegoat and I could figure out that I was being set up. Just a couple meaningful glances, people trading cards in a certain way. I'm like, wait a minute. These aren't my friends. And I ran to the cops and it was glorious. Now, again, in your early games with people who are only playing it for the first or second time, you're going to find that the scapegoat, I think, is going to win more often than not uh, because it is easy to make a mistake either in terms of setting up the scapegoat or it is easy to make a mistake in that the atmosphere of tension will cause someone to panic. And if somebody panics incorrectly in scapegoat, then that means that the scapegoat will win. But that's okay. I, I don't demand that social deduction games like this have good balance. For example, the resistance is not particularly well balanced, nor in my experience in some player counts or other mainstays like Secret Hitler or Werewolf, but that's all right. And I think that John Perry is really, really good at designing these kind of somewhat minimalistic card games that really evoke a lot of tension. And uh, I still haven't tried the expansion to Land, Air, and Sea, namely Spies, Lies, and Supplies. But I'm very much looking forward to that. It's an expand alone to that, that brilliant card game. And I am always happy to be able to expose new people to scapegoat. Now, I, uh, I mentioned that there was a large quantity of goat puns. Uh, this 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 set off a, a sort of competition amongst the table to see how many they could produce. Oh, God. It was painful. But then we actually started playing, and then it wasn't painful anymore. Painful. Walker. <laughs> You're such a bad influence. That was Scapegoat by John Perry and Indie Boards and Cards. This is a review copy we got from the designer. Mark, you and I got to get one of our favorite two-player games to the table. This is Battlelord 2nd Edition by Richard Borg and Robert A. Kuba designed, published by Fantasy Flight Games. And so this is the typical command and colors, but they do some vital things that are very different. One, you get to design your army. This is very unlike most of command and colors because most of them are very historical. So they try to keep into what's known as records that were fighting that battle. So this is very sort of fantasy battle-like where you get to pick your own units up to a certain point value. And the other thing they did that's different than a lot of them is that you don't get points for destroying units. It's very much scenario-based. 
And they did a very interesting job on the scenarios because every faction has a scenario deck and you draw a a few cards and you pick one. And not only does it have how you're going to get victory points and some special rules, it'll also give you how to set up your half of the map. So you decide on which one, you both lay down your card, you set up your half of the map, put out your units and you're off to the races. We've done a full review of Battlelore 2nd Edition. I'm a massive fan of almost all the games in the Command & Colors series. And you're quite right that that Battlelore 2nd Edition is very, very different from the rest of the Command & Colors, but I find it in a very interesting way. It emphasizes different kinds of maneuver. It emphasizes different kinds of formation. It emphasizes playing to certain scenarios and army building, all things that Commands and Colors uh, do in different ways. And I appreciate that difference. I think that Battlelord 2nd Edition and Legacy of Dragonhold are the only manifestations of Terranoth that I can wholeheartedly endorse. That's too bad. I was about to buy Dragonhold. Now that I know it actually takes place in Terranoth. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, to their credit, Nikki Valen's mostly runs away from the Terranothi bits. Oh, good. And instead focuses on little character moments. It's it's great. I, I've got it set up on my table. I'm going to go back to it very, very shortly. But anyway, Battlelore 2nd Edition. If I have any complaint, it's just that the unit density is sufficiently low that I find that uh, lucky results can be a little bit too deterministic. Like, if you only got one or two units in the left wing, and it so happens that through a couple of bad rolls, you end up losing the left wing. That can really put you behind the eight ball as far as cards are concerned. But this is a minor gripe, all told. I really like a lot of the systems. I like the unit variety. I think it gets a lot right. And it is a bit of a shame that they didn't continue with more expansions. But that having been said, there's a lot to be had if you can get your hands on a copy. And indeed, we have a spare copy for Commissioners and Overlords, if you're so inclined. Battlelore Second 2nd Edition can give you tons of fun. One thing I wish they had done is because they have... Uh, faction decks for every army, and they have their own spell decks as well. It would be interesting if they had their own their own command decks as well, because odd sometimes that you know you're drawing cards, and sometimes you can get a couple of the more powerful ones in a row. I know it's supposed to be random, and usually you know each player gets one. But anyway, that being said, they could have done some interesting stuff with you know specialized command decks. It's true, and that is Battlelore Second Edition. While Walker was away. We had our traditional celebrations. We danced under the moon. We sang the songs of Walker is Away. It was a joyous time. And one of the things that you get to do when Walker is Away is you get to play some of the good games that Walker does not enjoy. One of them was Millennium Blades. And so I finally got to try Millennium Blades Collusion, the latest expansion to Millennium Blades. For those not familiar, Level 99 Games has a certain design strategy or aesthetic with respect to some of their in-house productions. And it could be summarized as more is more. Just a huge variety a number of things happening. And sometimes this can be overwhelming, and sometimes that's kind of the point. I think in particular of games like Argent the Consortium as another example of more is more, although that was designed by Trey Chambers, not D. Brad Dalton, the founder and lead designer of a lot of Level 99 game stuff. But Millennium Blades, the conceit is marvelous. It's sort of a meta CCG. It's not, you don't play a CCG, but it's more a game about being a pro CCG player for a fictional game called Millennium Blades, which has been continuously in print for a thousand years. And there's just a huge volume of cards that now exist that you can build. And to their credit, as they've released new expansions, they've continuously introduced new suggested setups. And indeed, with Collusion, they now have a new suggested intro setup that is simultaneously accessible to new players, but shows some cool stuff from all the expansions. That, I think, is wonderful. Because, as I said, Millennium Blades can be somewhat overwhelming, and so I felt the need both for a beginner setup and to play the baby version. In the full version, and again, I I don't mean to be pejorative when I say babies. Some of my best friends are babies. I, I, I share a podcast with a baby. I won't mention his name. I don't want to embarrass him on air. But normally what you do is you play three tournaments. If you're playing with new players, you can do a pre-release tournament where you don't do any deck building. You just have the starter deck and play with that. And then you play two tournaments. So the game is still going to be long. Millennium Blades, one of the things against it is very, very long. But the sense of scope, the sense of development, the sense of reaction, the sense of an evolving, dare I say, meta in the context of other players, the ability to fine-tune and set a whole bunch of combos, the sheer volume of stupid, goofy references to things as far-flung as Macross and Transformers, to Magic the Gathering in-jokes or weird MOBA online ELO in-jokes. Marvelous, marvelous stuff. I'm really impressed with the Lonely Blades. As a product, it's it's kind of super impressive, the fact they've been able able to manage it this well. There were a number of misprints in the latest 
publication of Collusion. However, all of them relate to dividers, not to actual cards. So you have a huge universe of cards. Mo almost all of them are super interesting and useful in the right context. It's really, really cool. And the most satisfying thing that happens at the end of a Millennium Blades game is you look back at all three tournaments that you play and realize you played different decks. And this was true of my experience here. This was true of the new players as well. They built different decks. They Some cards would show up a, a two or th a two times, but seldom three. And... Uh, I really, really enjoy Millennium Blades Collusion. It is a very, very impressive add-on to a very, very impressive game system. They've introduced a number of rules changes. For example, you don't get points for money at the end of the game. There's a new outlet for cards in the form of the NPCs, little recipes you can make. The only quibble I would have with that is that there's a, a display of a couple of cards that can give you victory points. Where you put that display, especially in a real-time game, can make a massive difference. I was sitting next to the display. <laughs> I satisfied several of those special recipes. At the end of the game, Huey, who was sitting on the other end of the table, said, oh, I forgot those existed, and I'm not surprised. <laughs> Such is the way of things. It's unfortunate, but you have to make these decisions. And for what it's worth, just as a final note about the real-time element of Millennium Blades, what I find really interesting about timed games is, broadly speaking, there are two kinds of timed games. There are the timed games where you, the game is going to end because you ran out of time, and the time is going to force you to make a lot of mistakes. An example of that might be Vengeance Roll and Fight. You have to play as fast as you can, or you're not going to be able to do enough. And then there are timed games like Millennium Blades, where you're not expected to run out of time. It's just to make sure you don't subject yourself to analysis paralysis. It's just to make sure that the game moves at a reasonable clip. And indeed, the rulebook is very clear at encouraging you, if somebody needs an extra 30 seconds to set up their deck, give them the 30 seconds to set up their deck. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Great game. Great experience. I'm a huge fan of Millennium Blades. I'm glad to see the collusion does not disappoint. There's a lot there. And sometimes you feel like you have to force yourself to go out of your comfort zone to change your deck, but it's going to be worth it. You're really going to enjoy seeing the scope open up a little bit. Joshua Van Lanningham designed this expansion in conjunction with you, Brad Talton, published by Level 99 Games, Millennium Blades Collusion. I can't believe you're going to talk about Millennium Blades and not talk about the fat stacks, Mark. <laughs> in Millennium Blades, they do something that hardly any other games do. And like when you're, when you're setting up your game, you're actually banding like wads of cash bills together. Like all of the money is like that. None of the money is single notes. They're all these like fat, thick stacks of cash that you throw around and I, th I think it's amazing. It is amazing. It's really good. And I wish more games did like little interesting things like that. With I currency. agree with you. So Mark, I just went to a convention, more on that later, and I thought to myself, well, why not bring all super crunchy games? Because I usually don't have a lot of time to play games and, you know, might as well bring the ones that take a long time. Not thinking that, hey, Mike, you're going to have to teach all of these <laughs> super crazy crunchy games and let's start with Gollum. We've talked about Gollum. It is a game where you do action selection, two marble actions and a rabbi action. It has this interesting marble tower where you drop down the marbles and they slide down these ramps into slots, which make the actions more powerful. And you're building golems and they're out of control down these streets and your students are frantically trying to catch up to them and you're improving your board. Golem, wait, no, must work. I'm enjoying it more each time I play it because unlike some Euro games where you're always, by the end of the game, your board is completed and you're just sort of like eking out the last few points. I feel that it is impossible to do that in Gollum. In case, unless there's like some, maybe with more plays, there is an optimal way to finish your board, but I really don't think there is a way. So there's different ways to play each time. You go a little heavier into the books, a little heavier into your Gollum, a little heavier into artifacts, all different ways the game can progress. And I, I'm waiting to play more. It's a very interesting game. Designed by Famila Bersini, Virginio Gili, and Simone Luciani. Published by Cranio Creations, the, the publisher of Barrage. Sometimes, Walker, you want to play a crunchy euro, and sometimes you want to get stupid. And when I want to get stupid, sometimes I want to go back to the, one of the classics, Clash of the Gladiators by Reiner Knizia. For a long time, in point of fact, when I, after I entered the hobby in the early aughts, Clash of the Gladiators was kind of a legendary title in that it was the big-box Knizia game that was bad. <laughs> Knizia has published a lot of games, and even at the time, some of his very, very basic card games, although impressive in their minimalism, some of them aren't necessarily particularly gripping. One example from recent years is probably Llama. There's a game there, kind of, barely. He's iterated on that idea very successfully with Llama Dice, but Llama is an example of a game that would say, yeah, this is not exactly a testament to Reiner Knizia's genius. 
So Clash of the Gladiators was held up as kind of that same idea. It was the big box Kinitsi game that was bad. And when I tried it, I was very pleased slash disappointed to realize, no, it's not bad. It's it's quite good, actually. This is Reiner Knizia's version of a multiplayer, not quite troops on the map, but smack people across the face sort of game. Not quite a skirmish, not quite a troops on the map, kind of somewhere in between. It's basically a competitive dice game where you're dealing out wounds to other people. You draft teams of gladiators with special abilities, and indeed the combinatorics of the different gladiatorial teams are what keep me coming back year on year from Clash of Gladiators. Someone a few years ago on BoardGameGeek did a statistical analysis because there was for a while the supposition that a gladiatorial team of four swordsmen was dominant, would do better than three swordsmen and a specialist, namely the non-swordsmen, or two swordsmen and two specialists, which is kind of what a lot of people default to, myself included. And someone crunched all the numbers and demonstrated satisfactorily that four swordsmen will, on average, lose to three swordsmen and a specialist. And then what this person who did the analysis said, I cannot start crunching the numbers for what two specialists look like, because the number of combination of two specialists and the number of circumstances are too big, so just accept this and we're going to move on. (laughs) And... Which goes to show something that should surprise nobody, the math behind Class of Gladiators is tight. And so you do get interesting different combat situations. Do I want to attack that that person? Oh, they've got a net bearer. Oh, they've got more prong bearers than I do. Ooh, but I do have initiative on this other person. So maybe I'll go stab this person in the face. And sure enough, for a 30 to 45 minute dice chucker, you can do much, much worse. We were chanting the success of Death Sled, which was one of the nicknames of the game. It featured the glorious return from the fetid swamps of Kingston of Louis. We played with both Louis, Walker. Two Louis. There used to be two. One went away for a while, but now they're both back. And I got to stab some of the gladiators, and I got to be stabbed by some of their gladiators. And in addition, you get to engage in the time-honored tradition, I do not endorse this in real life, of gladiatorial combat of murdering animals for no good reason, and or getting mauled by whatever bear or lion happens to be in the particular arena. Clash of the Gladiators has a lot of charm, and I do not understand why it has gotten such a bad reputation. I guess it's because if you directly come off of modern art, through the desert, raw, and Tigers and Euphrates, and the next game you play by Ryder Knizia's Clash of the Gladiators, you might be like, wait, what? But <laughs> No, it was one of the very first games I ever bought, and it had that very much just like uh, Battle or Second Edition or Fantasy Battle. You get to create your own little units, and it'll, you know, you'll have their own little abilities, and just like you said, how you flush them out is going to totally change every game. It is absolutely worth the price of mission. There are used copies available all over the place. It is not a well-regarded game, and so a lot of people are letting go of it. Clash of the Gladiators by Ryan Knizia, published by Hansen Gluck originally and by Rio Grande in English in 2002. Yes, people were playing games back then. I don't want to make too much of that, of this, but I really do find in looking back at some of these games that are you know 20 years old and finding how jarring the male pronoun is neuter is... It really is an indication of how much success we've had over the past couple of years. And by success we, I mean success in the field generally. It kind of reminds me, again, not to make too much out of it, of the line from Mahatma Gandhi, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And I remember going through all of those stages of the public discourse around the male pronoun is neuter in rule books, of people bringing it up. First it got nowhere, then it was mocked, then there was some trenchant fighting, and now it's the industry standard. You don't find many any games published today that use the male pronoun as neuter. So when going over the rules for classic gladiators, I was like, oh yeah, how quaint and objectionable. And it just made me appreciate that we've had some successes. So true. Got to play Guards of Atlantis 2 again, luckily. And I had a great teammate. Unfortunately, we had to play against Captain Tryhard as he two-handed his way to victory. Of course, <laughs> I'm joking. I got to play with Sam. Are you though? <laughs> I got to play with Sam. He is a host of a a French-Canadian podcast called The Board Game Duel. A rival podcast. I don't I don't consider him a rival. Oh, that's a good point. Um, <laughs> uh, it was a great game. It came right down to the wire, right down to the last turn. It was either we were going to kill one of their teammates or they were going to push, and they pushed. It was a great game. Cards of Atlantis 2, so many characters to choose from, so many different ways. Our team... Didn't take a single casualty. I don't think I've ever seen that in Guards of Atlantis 2. It's impressive. We played uh, very sort of defensively and kept out of the way. And I think that's why we lost. But anyway, it was still fun. Guards of Atlantis 2 is designed by Artie Nishaporov and published by Wolf Designer. Walker, a couple of weeks ago, we played Ghost Adventure. 
Yes, we did. Why didn't we talk about Ghost Adventure? I think Maybe it was because forgot. it was so awesome. It just couldn't, we couldn't have our consciousness grasp it. Ghost Adventure is designed by Vlad Watin of Buzzy Games, published a couple of years ago. And Ghost Adventure I put squarely in the same sort of genre as Looney Quest and Slide Quest. Strangely enough, usually published in France, and usually some kind of physical gimmick coupled with charming art that leads to a shockingly enjoyable experience. Now, because it's gimmick-based, I question the longevity. Looney Quest, I was a huge fan of for about 10 plays, and then I didn't really want to go back to it. And Slide Quest, I don't think we ever really gave it its its full due. Uh, but I don't know that it would, we, we would want to go back to it time and time again. Same thing with Ghost Adventure, but it's a joyous little experience and very, very accessible for kids. The way Ghost Adventure works is it has these tops, and you literally spin the top on top of a triple-layered board, and you just tilt the board so that the top goes where you want it to go. Now, it starts off relatively easy, and one of the cool coolest moments about it is you actually hand off to your partner. So I'm there standing with a board with the top, trying to tilt it over, and I'm trying to get it through the exit. Meanwhile, Walker is standing there with his board underneath, and you have to coordinate so that the top lands at the right place and so you don't run, uh, scupper your run, and then you immediately go back to sw- swapping places. It's this lovely little ballet when it works well. But then you get to some of the harder ones where it's like, okay, you need to roll, you need to go over this thing, but to go there, you need to go over a jump. And when you jump, what you do is you kind of buck the board a little bit so that the top goes onto the second layer of the triple layer board, not the third. <laughs> and then you have to stay on the second layer without falling back in because if you fall back into the lower layer of the board, you got to go back to the jump and do the whole thing again, all the while fighting the clock. But there's no clock. It's organic. It's the top. The top stops spinning and you're dead. You're done. You have to start the run over from the last save point. I thought Ghost Adventure was adorable and I am perfectly happy to go back to it and to see how many like how much legs it has. And it's a comic book, like a, a language independent comic book. And you know, I'm not saying it's the greatest story all the time, but the fact that they got language independent and you can sort I of I wasn't able to follow what was going on. You can on. sort of make up your own story as you're going there along. There you go. <laughs> I thought it was very charming. And uh, I like it. And there's two ways to spin the top. Ghost Adventure is much like, you know, when you go to your friend's place or you go to someone else and they have one of those wooden maze marble things with the two dials. Sorry, f- friends? Friends, yes. Yeah, someone you know a while and you talk to and you have common interests. Oh. And they have one of these games that, you know, the maze marble wooden thing. And, and you cannot stop yourself from playing said <laughs> maze marble thing as you try to tilt it back and forth and avoid the pit. This is very much the feeling of Ghost Adventure. I, I do have to emphasize those moments of trying to tilt to the top onto your partner's board, really quality cooperation. And it's it's a very, very good use of the gimmick. And like many gimmicks of this type, it really lives or dies based on the strength of the components. And I think the boards are very, very well done. And so I was very pleased with Ghost Adventure. And when you get further into the, the different quests, there's going to be ones where you actually have to flip the top up and flip the board that you actually have all the way around. Oh, my goodness. And get it to land back onto that board. Yeah, it's going to be great. Can't wait. I got to play one of my favorites, Mark, Orleans, designed by Reiner Stockhausen and published by DLP Games and Tasty Minstrel Games. Love everything about it. It's got, unfortunately, it's got one of those, uh, I don't want to say rule set, but component things where you just don't go into the 50,000 different buildings that come with the game. Mm. Because you cannot go through them all. The the explanation would take too long. So you give all the other rules and say, by the way, there are about (laughs) 50 different buildings that you can build over there. Here's the pages. When it's not your turn, feel free to browse through them. (laughs) Perhaps perhaps I poisoned you. If I were more of a tryhard, I wouldn't do that. But as as we've been very clear, we have a no tryhards policy here at this point. It's so true. And there's there's many games like that where there's, there's like tons of tokens you can buy or things you can upgrade and it's just impossible to go through them all so you just sort of like leave them to the side and say well you're just going to have to figure that out on your own. I remember very distinctly teaching Kemet once at a game night and I'm like okay well what I typically do is I go over all the level 1 abilities but then if you want to figure look at all the level 2, 3, and 4 abilities you can just do that by yourself because I mean I could explain all of them and then someone interrupted and said yeah yeah please do I'm like okay Apparently we're doing this. And then I went through all of the commit tiles and explained. It was a bit painful. But, but that's how some people want to play. More power to them, I guess. And that was Orleans. We got to play Shamans. Now, 
It turns out that I've been playing shamans incorrectly, so I I thank very much the PDN sincerely on the internet for pointing this out. When you play with different player counts, some cards don't enter the deck, but they don't leave the game for the round. They actually start queued up towards triggering their effect. I have been under the impression that randomly some of the effects wouldn't happen. And that was one of the reasons why I felt the three-player game and the four-player game were so different. Now, having played correctly, they're still different, albeit on a different axis. And the difference is as follows. While it is now the case that in every game of Shaman, it's mostly about triggering certain events, because this is a trick taker where once all the cards of a given suit, normally six, eight if you're playing with five players, have been played, something will consequential will happen. And it is really important who does that and when. But it is also really important that you get there without doing too much damage, because this is a game of a traitor in Shamans, where every time you play a card off-suit, something bad happens. And once the once the off-suit track gets exhausted, the bad player wins. And my increasing experience is that unless the good players are very good at triggering the aforementioned rituals in the right way the bad player just wins by default without even having to try anything. And at the right time, right? Right. It, it leads to some of the dynamics that I really don't like in Secret Hitler, namely that it is in the interest of the bad player of the evil shaman to play straight. There's no reason for them to risk being outed because their most significant threat is being killed. There are some gameplay events that can cause you to force information into the system. There's a single tile, for example, that's the Mask of Truth. That if you take the Mask of Truth, you reveal your identity to the rest of the table, and if you're good, it's in your interest to take it. So you can just show that you're uh, that you're trustworthy. And this is the key difference between three and four players. You're playing with three, and you're sitting there, and you're good, and you have to assassinate somebody. You've got a 50-50 shot of winning the round right there. Four players, suddenly you're down to 33%. And the difference between one and three and one and two, really significant in games of the silk. I'm still enjoying it. It's still really interesting. I just, I don't know how much is there. What was your experience, Walker? I feel that there's nothing there. But I feel, <laughs> I feel that it's so short that it's okay, right? I feel sure. much like other of these hidden role games. It's like either have no idea who it is or you know exactly who it is. There's very little in between in this game. There's sort of you have no idea who it is or you know exactly, you know. And as the bad pair, like you said, you're better off just playing normally because they're going to run out of cards and the game's probably going to go in your favor anyway. Because if you can't play on suit, then it's just going to your... And yes. you can sort of manipulate the cards in a way that it just looks like you are saying, well, well, you played a suit that I didn't have. So, And it's true. So you're not actually lying and they, they can't hit you on it. And you can always pick... Uh, those tokens that are face up and don't take a risk on taking a face down one because, like you said, you might get the mask. So why not take the blades so no one can stab you? So anyway. Yeah. There, there was one dynamic that struck me in our last game that was incredibly interesting and also, unfortunately, very degenerate. And was, again, I'm again starting to realize that the entirety of the game was about triggering these rituals. As a good player, I was looking at who was about to win the trick and thereby trigger a ritual. Therefore, it was in my interest to play off-suit so that they couldn't trigger the ritual now. But that would make me look dirty. And there was no leeway for playing off-suit anyway. So it wasn't so much as competing interests as a potentially interesting interaction undercut by some of the other balance and informational issues present in Shamans. It also made put you in a kingmaker position as well. Yes, the scoring was such that I accidentally engaged in some kingmaking. For this, I apologize to the great gods of gaming. It's true. I didn't know that I was doing it at the time, but in hindsight, that's exactly what I did. And uh, in fairness, I, it might have been the case that I might not have been kingmaking, but I should have seen it coming. That is shamans. I still find it interesting. I don't know if I'm going to... Clearly, you don't really want to go back to it. Oh, no. Like I said, it's short enough that I don't mind Fair playing enough. it. It's it's It might have something there. I want to look more into it. I only played once, but it just seems fairly straightforward. I got to play Carnegie again. It is just more and more becoming a fantastic game. Again, not with me. It's fine. It's fine. Sorry. You don't want me to. You don't want me to play the good game. It's true. It's it's great. You 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 keep talking about how great it is. You won't play with me. I refuse. You don't deserve <laughs> the greatness that is <laughs> Carnegie. Wow, that's uh, given the theme of the game and given his legacy. That there's a lot going on there. <laughs> so Carnegie is designed by Xavier George. He's done many games that we enjoy, Twa and Gigopolis. Ian O'Toole's done the art, and it's very, I guess the board itself is very much Ian O'Toole, but the other sort of character art is much different. This is put out by Quinted Games, 
And it's got this action selection, triggering events, either income or donations, and you're making roots on the board, and you're you're just constantly making sure that you're seated for what actions your opponents might take and sort of figuring out what they're going to take as well. He's got active workers here, so I'm going to make sure that that action's ready to go for me. You've got this great one-time token that lets you do whatever action you want that can be vital to winning the game. Everyone enjoyed the game there. Love to teach it. Love to show it to people. It's exactly what I'm in this hobby for. Carnegie. Also got to get Scythe back to the table, Mark. Scythe is such a great game designed by Jamie Stegmeyer, put out by Stonemeyer Games. It's got these giant mechs. It's got this very interesting player board where you're unlocking abilities, you're sliding cubes down, making actions better, making other things cheaper, collecting resources, forcing people to move around the board, stealing their resources, putting out objectives, you know, getting to the factory, getting cooler actions. It was great experience i got to play with the love meeples were they wearing like crushed velvet robes no okay they were strewing rose petals as they walk though seriously no okay darn (laughs) mark i was like maybe they did i don't know it could be true let me have some magic in my right. life. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes. So I got to play with a, a few of the listeners and the Love Meeples. They do a streaming. I, I We used to get together and do some rolling rights on Twitch. And we had organized this. And it was a great time. Scythe. Also got to play a game. I keep forgetting what it's called. I think it's called something like Joyous Guild of Gluttonous Merchants that Occasionally Explore in the West Valley. Something like that. So this is. A I think f- it's called the Guild of Merchant Explorers. Walker. Is that what it is? Yeah, I think. Okay. I think so. All right. So this is designed by Matthew Dustin and Brett J. Gilbert, put out by AEG. It is a great little uh, flip and rate. It's the one light game that I did bring. You're flipping the same core cards over while slowly introducing one new, really cool. I think this is the hook of the game. If it didn't have this, it would be garbage. I think, in my opinion. <laughs> Because it's this really, it's just giant deck of special abilities. Uh, you get a new one every round, of which there are four. Sorry, that's a lie. You get three abilities, and the fourth one you get to use one of them a second time that round. Anyway, I digress. You get dealt two, pick one. You're spreading out with these cubes. You're putting out villages, which Blue Lagoon style lets you spread out from there next turn. Because every round you remove all the cubes putting out towers, you're uncovering ruins, you're creating these uh, monopolies between cities, lots going on, interesting game, the Guild of Merchant Explorers. And those are the games we played this week. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So I saw a game called Discordia. This is designed by Bernd Eisenstein of Pandora fame, and that's a game we enjoyed. This is going to be published by Iron Games. Has a great sort of graphic design, lots of stuff going on. I would look into it. So a brief shout out to the winners of the SDJ, the Spiel des Jahres in Germany. Cascadia from Randy Flynn and Flat Oak Games. Congratulations. And I, ver- I mean this very sincerely. Enjoy your SDJ bucks. The Kenner Spiel, which I'm not even going to bother trying to translate because ask two different people what the Kenner Spiel means. So you'll get about five answers. Was given to Living Forest from Aske Christensen and Ludo Knott. Congratulations to all involved and to all the nominees. Living Forest looks really fantastic. The artwork, wow. Mark, the nightmare goes on further. There's this thing called Wordle, and it was like very big a, oh, few, yeah. a few months ago. And I'd get these constant Facebook messages about how my friends did great at this dumb game. <laughs> so, so now there's going to be Hot a take. now there's going to be a board game version of Wordle. Yeah. Hooray! Aren't we lucky? Well, the world has come full circle. Wordle was basically Mastermind, but with words. Mastermind being kind of, sort of a board game, but not really. And now there's going to be a Wordle board game. And in Hasbro fashion, this is designed by N slash A, with the artist being N slash A, published by Hasbro. <laughs> and lastly for me is a game called Sabika. This is designed by German P. Milan and going to be put out by Luna Nova. And it, this has a very Merv feel to it. It's not done by the same artist. Uh, Merv was done by uh, Eno Tool. This is done by Laura Bebevon. Looks fantastic. Three different rondelles, all sorts of different looking meeples. Something to look forward to. Sabika. Finally for me, great, great news. Once again, shucks, the Shut Up and Sit Down Expo will be returning to Vancouver on September 30th to October 2nd. This is the first time in three years that the convention is being held. And once again, we will be there. We will be invitees. The specific events are very much TBD, but we have some interesting stuff that we are going to be trying to get done. At a minimum, though, over the course of shucks, we are going to be there. I'm going to play Sidereal Confluence if it kills me. I will probably also try to play Cosmic Encounter if it kills me. I will... Once we get the uh, to the exhibition hall, I will run screaming and laughing away from Walker and play all the games that he doesn't let me play on the reg. Maybe we'll even play the copy of Tigers and Euphrates that Walker himself donated to the convention library. Once again, that is from September 30th to October 2nd in Vancouver, the Shut Up and Sit Down Expo, and So Very Wrong About Games will be there. Fun stuff. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is fumbling towards the new normal. I've been I've been thinking about this a lot, and, and most of my thoughts are going to be inchoate, which is to say scattered and not particularly structured or, 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 or finished. And I don't know where the world is going to break, right? These are the same questions to a large extent we've been asking for three years now almost. <laughs> but I, I can kind of feel that we're kind of at an inflection point in terms of how the hobby is is emerging from slash continuing to deal with the pandemic. Because I have two observations, first of all, just to start off. I, I, I don't want to make this a soapbox moment, but I think we can all agree on two things. Number one, there is still a pandemic. We are entering what in Canada, what has very described by, and this is depressing, the seventh wave <laughs> with a new subvariant of Omicron. I thought we were labeling these things with Greek letters so we didn't have to memorize complex word and letter strings. But now apparently that didn't work. So it's Omicron BA5 or whatever, whatever, whatever. I can't even remember. But number two, and I think this is true, and I, but I, I don't mean to get all political about this. I, when I get political, trust me, you'll know. A large proportion of the world seems to have decided that the pandemic is over. Does that seem like a fair observation? Or they just don't care anymore. Right, right. Effectively, you know, tarps off, boys. We're not going to be... We we have had enough. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I don't know between these... Like, given those two observations about the world, and given my own level of, I guess, endurance, I don't know where I'm sitting, but I think that these are important questions to be asking about how the hobby is going forward. Yeah, I I just think that there's no problem with having any view at all. But 
if you have the view of I've had enough or I don't care, remember that there are people out there that do yeah. care and have not had enough. And, so, and who don't have the luxury of deciding that, they, that they're not going to care. Exactly so. So just make sure you're taking into consideration everyone in the hobby and, and everyone wants to feel comfortable. Yeah. So conventions are back. Very clearly. You just came back from Breakout. There are a number of other conventions that are starting up after a long absence. Shucks is one of them. We locally have been, there's a, a local convention just for friends. There's been some rumblings about whether we want to start that up again or offer some alternative in lieu of that. There have been some other larger-ish gatherings. Uh, so what was it like being, because this is your first like it was. convention experience since the pandemic, right? It seemed quieter to me. Other, other I and I expressed that to some of the other uh, attendees, but they said, no, it was just as busy as it was last time. But I really didn't feel that. Maybe it was more because I was secluded. I just more like more likely just stayed at one table the whole time and didn't really walk around much. But, mm-hmm. but it seemed a lot quieter than usual. Well, I mean, having the sign out there would probably be a great way to advertise people to stay away. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. I felt kind of alone. It was odd. <laughs> no, actually, that's, since we're talking about the convention, it was a great experience. Lots of listeners got to talk to a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Uh, like I said, Sam was great there. We played a lot of games. All was good at the convention. Yeah, it's and- weird. Like, our our jobs have always been somewhat alienating, right? You know, we sit here in a ba- literally in a basement in our blanket fort alone, and we shout into a can, and we know that people are listening. <laughs> but the last time we really met listeners in any serious way was two and a half years ago. And it's not a necessary feature of the job, but it's weird that the social elements of our hobby have really kicked back into gear. Like like for, for our daily gaming life, we've been at full normal for quite some time. Like setting aside the fact that I was on the road, setting aside that, like the agency, like, you know, four or five close friends who were in kind of a bubble in a, in uh, gathering around a table, playing a game. That's been business as usual for a while. It's all the other stuff that's getting back. So, so getting back to breakout, uh, what was, what was their policy on masks? Masks everywhere in the area. Masks obligatory all the time. Okay. Yeah. I noticed that a lot of the American conventions aren't doing that. And they some did. Of, some of them did. And then some of them have rooms, like here's a room that you don't have to wear your mask in. Right. Right. Yeah. It, that's one of the things that people are navigating. Like I noticed at our local game store that, that has had its local game night back for not too long, only a few months, I think, uh, it's still masks obligatory in the play space. The, 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 the provincial policy, it's weird. A lot of people are, are rely, have been, over the course of the pandemic, this is not a new observation, have been relying on public health agencies to give them cover, right? If you're a small business, and I completely understand this, if you're a small business owner, you don't want to have to get involved in parsing infection rates or looking at wastewater data or having to tell your patrons what's what. So you use the public health agencies as cover and just follow, do whatever they say is necessary. And for the past few months in private businesses and in closed spaces, the official policy of the Ontario government, as well as a lot of other provincial governments, has been masks optional. But please be respectful. (laughs) Has been the line. But in the play area, it's been masks obligatory. So any time we've been playing not with you, it's been with a mask. Uh, Speaking personally, I've kind of gotten used to it. It's not ideal. Like, I remember, though, the first time I explained a game wearing a mask. And I immediately thought, this is the worst thing ever and the most burdensome. <laughs> I'm, I'm exaggerating. I wasn't ready to go to the ramparts. But it's 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 a bit of a drag. It is. Let's be honest. It's voice muffling. Yeah. Sometimes they don't even know the voice is coming from you because it sort of like throws your voice. And especially when you're in a, uh, a gaming environment like that because it gets very loud. I don't remember when we did it, but we did. I think it was back at my, yeah, it was back when I was in my house when I had like 25 to 30 people coming to my basement playing Warhammer. We would, every so often, we'd just say, okay, everyone stop. You'd have sort of reset the noise level because it did this like slow, gradual up where people were like getting louder and louder because they had out talk to the tables. Okay, everyone reset back to zero. And, it was like, and that's even before you met me. It's, it's true. You know, we would have to do that every four minutes, but now not so much anymore. Well, I remember the first public game night that I attended since the pandemic. It was in Vancouver. Going from, I commented this on an episode of Bloat, going from Ontario, which at the time was in full lockdown, and then driving to Vancouver, which never went to full lockdown. It was very jarring. And the the first game night back, it was, you know, two to three hours of gaming, all masked. And then I was just hoarse 
for days because I just hadn't been talking much and I hadn't had to, you know, explain games or what have you. That's what I mean. I sounded like I smoked about eight packs of cigarettes when this weekend was over. Right. Like, but but was that like, would that have been true even if you'd been at, at Oh, no, yeah. Break, it had nothing yeah. to do with the mask. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that would have been the same consequences of attending Breakout, you know, five yeah. years ago. It was just the fact that I haven't had a game day like that in quite a while. Yeah. And what's been striking to me is is coming back is that suddenly the universe of games that exist, suddenly I'm just re-remembering all these other kinds of experiences. Like I meant what I said a few weeks ago when when playing code names for the first time in a few years was revelatory. There's so many things about the hobby, good, bad, and indifferent, that I'd completely forgotten about. And one of them was large player count games. Just didn't happen. Just impossible. Yeah, you could play code names with four, sure, but it's not the kind of thing that we would think to do. And so playing code names with eight people, three of whom I'd never met, it was it's like, oh yeah, this is the hobby too. It was it was completely eye opening. Have you had moments like that? Yeah, for sure. This is what I was going to talk about with the fact that now that because the board gaming industry had this huge influx over the COVID because people yeah. were families were at home, the uh, online computer versions also skyrocketed. Yep. So when our local gaming store started its nights again, we had a, a, a you know more than usual That's true. a lot of new people, and we almost went right back to full numbers almost immediately. There yeah. was like twenty to fifteen people there every night, every night that we have a. Yeah, once a week. Once a week. And uh, so, yes, lots of new people. And the one thing about the convention that I was going to say is that usually in conventions you go, there's usually that one or two games that you see almost everywhere. Like one, you know, tons of blood rage. This time, not so much. Hmm. Different games everywhere. Even you'd think Arc Nova would be everywhere. That was the first one that came to mind, actually. Yeah, it was not. They had quite a few copies. It was being played. I did see it a couple times, but it was not like everywhere where I would suspect normally it would be. That's interesting. The other thing about public game nights, and I suspect this will be less true of conventions, but the experience of like five to eight people milling around trying to figure out what to play. <laughs> the politics and the dynamics of getting a game to the table. Now, you're fortunate. I I, I talked about this extensively, actually, in, in, in the last episode of Bloat. Uh, I remember the, the past couple times you would set up something like Carnegie or something like that. Given the local dynamics, and this is not to minimize your skills as a wrangler of humans and a leader of people, but... Given the local dynamics, Carnegie is not a difficult thing to get people to volunteer for, right? It's the kind of medium-heavy Euro that is very much appealing to a certain subsection of, of what's going on. The our, our local meta, for what it's worth, tends to be predominated by people who like the medium-weight, crunchy stuff, theme-optional, which is fine. I like games like that, too. And the lighter stuff, which is also fine. I like that, too. But there is a certain class of game, which I would absolutely put Guards of Atlantis in. I would also put Sidereal Confluence in, things like Cosmic Encounter, things like Millennium Blades, right? A certain rules density that definitely takes it past light. A certain level of chaos that would rub a lot of Euro players the wrong way. And a certain level of theme that encourages a sense of, of, of what I would call varying shades of wacky abandon, right? And these are games that in our local group are hard to get to the table. And I'd completely forgotten that. <laughs> I, I'm completely unable. I've lost whatever leap of faith is required for me. Like, I have this box. Everyone, it's fun. You just, everyone. Come play my come, game. Come play my. Oh, no, no. We're, we're going to play Codames again. Okay, that's fine. I'll put, it, I'll put it away now and, and burn it. And never play it again. And never play it again. Yeah, it's just, I. <laughs> do, do, you, do you remember no. what I. Yeah, 100%. I'm on your page and we've had, we've seen. Issues with that in the past where some people are trying to really force games onto groups that obviously aren't into that type of game. Right. And, and there is a, there is a nuance to it. There is a respecting of people's time. There's, yep. There's just – there is a very large nuance on how to get games you want to play to the table. And it's just – again, it, it's – I had completely forgotten that aspect. It's one of my least preferred aspects of it because – I feel this tremendous sense of responsibility. When it was always just us, we're very good at scheduling things. And if it's not scheduling things, even if it just so happens that we haven't had a pre-designated game or whatever that fell through, we have a list of, well, literally in some cases of the swag canon. If you set Huey, Dewey, Louie, and I, you know, we remember games that were all like, well, shall we play X? Like, oh yeah, I love X. Great. <laughs> you hit the ground running in five seconds. But with Strangers Man, this is this is what I'm remembering. This is what I'm having to deal with in terms of the, the new of the new normal. Having to play well with others again, and it's hard. 
How do you do it? <laughs> I, I just, I, I put it away. I have it out. I give it time. <laughs> and it's, it, I'm not always successful. And I just don't press it. And, yeah. I, and I, I have that mindset. You have to have that mindset going in. Or else you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. You're yeah. going to get angry. You'll be frustrated. And just don't, just don't be that way. Just, just know that you're just going to have to go with the flow. That's what game nights are all about. Yeah. So, which, which brings us back, I think, actually to conventions. Because I think more and more I have to accept the fact that if I want to play games like Guards of Atlantis, especially with, with like six or eight people, because I, I, the game is great at, at those player counts. If I want to play Sidereal Confluence, so I want to play Cosmic Encounter, the very divisive games. I could probably get Cosmic Encounter at the table. There are some locals that like it, and it, it's not particularly fussy about player count. Four, five, six, that, that's not too hard to get to. I, I really have to accept that these are convention experiences, which is... You know, it's great that we've been invited back to Chuck's and I'll have that opportunity. I just have to keep in the back of my head that Sidoro Confluence is going to have to wait a few months and, and we'll get it done then. Um, so, which which gets us right back into, into perceptions of risk, right? The travel that I've been doing over the course of the past year was all very low-risk travel. In my own car, from one place to another, very, very brief encounters, always masked at, at, at road stops where I just went to the washroom and then I went right back to my car. Uh, and I did have to fly for some elder care. But flying isn't particularly dangerous. I don't know. It's just I have to once again go back to the era of navigating risk. And to a large extent, I've just been so isolated for a variety of non-pandemic-related reasons. Like, I feel like I'm having to relearn a whole bunch of new skills. It's very strange. Yeah, we had this conversation with one of the locals that came up to the convention. And he ha- he's in uh, to swing dancing. And they go to all these different events. And he he thought it was, you know, we went to one and everything was what, what he expected. You are in very close contact. Yes. Breathing heavily on each other. Yes. And of course, you're going to wear masks. But then they went to a different venue when he had a mask on. He Everyone looked at like, why are you wearing a mask? And yeah. None the, and none of them wore masks. And you would think that if in that particular setting, that would be the time that you would wear masks. But by the same token, it's more burdensome to wear masks in those contexts precisely by virtue of the physical exertion. So it's 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 a strange new environment, and again, I don't have any answers. These are just things to, to to keep in mind. It is entirely possible, and I'm not I'm not saying here that I'm planning on bailing, but it is possible that in the course of a couple months, that could be an eternity. Something could happen, and and suddenly it might not be safe to go to Vancouver anymore. And that's just a weird state to be in in terms of planning your life, uh, even just in the context of your hobby life. It's it's a it's a strange. I don't know what I'm gonna. The other thing that I don't really know what I'm gonna feel like is what is what is it gonna feel like to walk into a convention center? I haven't been around that many people before. The most people I've been around has probably been in Costco when I'm just furtively you know going about doing my business. That sounds dirty, but you know what I mean. I know I work there, so I'm used to a lot of people. Right. So let's get back to some industry stuff. So during pandemic, tons of new Twitch channels tons yep. of more ooh the filthy word content creators making more <laughs> stuff tons of, and this is now thinned out because now people can go out they can start doing more stuff you can really see the levels dropping off yeah of you, these you mentioned that things. you saw a number of people getting out of the field as activities have started to resume resume in the real world again even the people i played scythe with had not streamed in quite a while oh really interesting that's interesting that's bad, but what is good is all the local gaming stores, people coming back, like we just talked about, game nights starting up again, uh, board game cafes, board game pubs, getting this huge influx of customers back in, mm-hmm. all of these new customers that have now come to our hobby, now going to be frequenting these establishments, so all of that stuff is good. Yeah, I'm very curious to see what the publishing release schedule is going to look like over the course of the past couple of years. Like, is this trajectory that we've had over the course of the pandemic a blip? Is it part of a broader pattern that that is bigger than just the pandemic? Or are we going to return to publishing schedules that look a little bit more like they did a few years ago? I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. Well, I think with this problem with shipping. So shipping, yeah. shipping had started to just become a problem before, just as COVID was starting. Yeah. It was a problem with containers. Uh, there was a lot of price cutting going on, and so empty containers were not being shipped back. So therefore, they could not ship out new stuff because there was a lack of containers. And a lot of board game publishers still not adequately pricing shipping into their models, and so undercharging people. So now, COVID, uh, I want to say this before I forget. There is a YouTube channel called Board Game Design, 
and they have a whole how COVID changed the board game industry forever video. So almost this is where I've got some of my, my information from. I would check out that video. It was very interesting. So a lot of this stuff I already knew, which was funny because I'd written this all down. And I said, oh, here's a video. I'll watch this. And then I just went over my notes and say, okay, I got that. Right. Anyway, long story <laughs> short. But anyway. I, I want to get, I want to say that video in case someone watches this and say, oh, he got all his stuff from there and didn't even, yeah. you know, say we'll, anything about it. We'll include a link in the description. All right. So long story short, uh, lots of uh, factories closing down because of COVID, lots of uh, things happening, which only like has now quadrupled the cost of these containers. Yeah. Because just as, for context, we've largely decided, again, for some reasons, good and bad in North America, that we don't shut things down anymore. That is not true in China, where they absolutely will shut places down and have very recently compounding a lot of these issues. So what what we've come to is the fact that I have a feeling that the the publishers are going to start reducing the size of these boxes, which is good because we've all, this is what we've talked about before. Less of these, you know, giant plasticky molds holding miniatures, giant boxes, you know, get everything reduced down Mm -hmm. to smaller boxes because then you can fit more games into a container, which will reduce your shipping. Yeah, I hope that is a trend that actually obtains. We'll see. It's weird having been in so much uncertainty for so long, (laughs) but I feel like we really are kind of sort of navigating new sets of standards. and. It, so it's possible to me, like, I don't know when masking public is going to go away, like as a default. I hope that, that, that five, 10 years from now, we're kind of, we're going to kind of adopt some of the, the practices that you see in East Asia and other parts of the world where if you feel sick, if you have symptoms, if it is flu season, whatever, you mask up so as to protect other people. I don't know if we're going to keep that. And I don't know when we're going to get to a situation in the course of this decade, even. If we're going to get to a situation where at a convention, at a game night, or wherever, everywhere, there's not going to be a default of masking. Some places are already there, as you said. I don't know if some places are ever going to get there. I really don't know. Who knows? Who knows indeed. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for spending some time with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bicking. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.